Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can sing with one voice of the blood of Jesus that has cleansed us from our sins. Lord, I thank you that we can pray with the psalmist, forgive my sin, O Lord, for it is great, and have assurance that it indeed is forgiven because of what your Son has done for us. Lord, I pray tonight that you would enlarge our hearts, strengthen our faith, and draw us closer to you. Amen. I was told by one of my children that I might have missed one of the commandments at the beginning. I don't know if that's true, but if I did and you noticed, I do mean them all. I wasn't doing that on purpose. In the great epics in stories, there's oftentimes a moment when a hero has to do something that on the surface is inexplicable. You need to know the backstory for their action to make sense. An example of this is Aragorn and the Lord of the Rings going through the paths of the dead. If you don't know the backstory, it's one of the strangest moments in the book where this ranger, the future king, enters this valley and goes through this dark passageway where he confronts a dead army, an army of ghosts that cannot rest in the grave. And he calls them to follow him into battle. If you don't know the backstory, it is a strange moment. You need to know that this race of men had pledged their allegiance to Aragorn's ancestor, and they had broken their oath and been cursed to die and not be able to die in peace. Only in following Aragorn and fulfilling their oath can they be set free from this curse. The backstory makes his action make sense. If you're unfamiliar with Lord of the Rings, think to Narnia. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we constantly hear the refrain, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. And you might ask yourself, why is it that in a land populated by talking animals and fawns, we need human people sitting on the throne? But the answer is given. You just have to read the backstory. It's in The Magician's Nephew, where we see the way that Aslan creates the world and takes a humble cab driver out of London and his wife and makes them the first king and queen, thus establishing the pattern that it's sons of Adam and daughters of Eve who would rule over Narnia. The backstory makes things make sense. The stories that we read today about Jesus are like that. There's something similar. We need to know the backstory if we want these stories to make sense. The baptism of Jesus, him being driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, the even weirder one that we heard in 1 Peter, were dead in the body, yet alive in the spirit. He descends to make proclamation over spirits in prison. These are moments when the hero is doing something. And if we don't know the backstory, we would be scratching our heads going, I have no idea why Jesus needs to do these things. We have a tendency to reduce the gospel to something like this. Jesus died so that we can be forgiven of our sins. 
It's like summarizing the Lord of the Rings by saying Frodo took the ring to Mount Doom and destroyed it. It's a true summary, but it's a little bit small. It misses a few of the details. With only that summary of the gospel, Jesus died so that I could be forgiven of my sins. We could be forgiven for not knowing what to do with Jesus' baptism and not knowing what to do with the Spirit driving him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and certainly having no idea what to do with this weird thing about him descending and making proclamation over spirits who are in prison. It's necessary to have a succinct summary of the gospel to give to others. And we can gain a little bit of information about the baptism and the temptation. Jesus truly identifies with the sinners that he comes to save if we only have this succinct summary. But with that succinct summary, we'll have a small understanding of these things and we'll certainly have no idea what to do with this weird proclamation over spirits. Our little bitty understanding of the baptism of the temptation that he actually identifies with the sinners he comes to save. That little understanding is correct, but it's not complete. It's correct like saying that Aragorn went through the paths of the dead to increase the size of the army, and it misses the fact that there was a curse to be redeemed. There was a people to be taken out of bondage. There is a bigger answer to this question. Like I said, it's important to have a succinct summary of the gospel to give to those who've never heard it. But in the words of Tolkien's friend, C.S. Lewis, we need to go further up and further in. We need to seek a deeper understanding of the entire story. We need a deeper understanding of the entire story so that our hearts would be enlarged. Because when we begin to see the whole magnitude of what Jesus has done, we we begin to be more amazed at him. Our delight grows. Our understanding grows and it creates a better understanding of the world, our place in it, our calling. Ultimately, it creates deeper faith, stronger love. So today, in a couple of these strange stories, namely just the temptation in the wilderness, I want to go further up and further in with you. I want to seek a bigger understanding of why Jesus did this and why he had to do this. In order to do so, we need to go back to the very beginning of the Bible. And before you get worried, we're not going to touch all of the pieces along the way, but we need to go back to the beginning to begin to understand this temptation. So a few people get nervous. This is a big Bible after all, and there's lots of pages. In the beginning we read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the beginning, God created. He creates the matter, and we open the story with the raw material all there. But the raw material is a wasteland. It's empty space without form, without shape, and darkness covers it. It's chaos everywhere. In the language that we've been using from Mark 1, this is raw wilderness. But God is not content with raw wilderness. He's not content with this chaos. And so he begins to act. He speaks. And when he speaks, by the sheer power of his word, order begins to emerge out of the chaos. He speaks. 
and light shines forth, filling the world with glory. He speaks and separates light from dark. See the order and the symmetry that he's creating. He's not content with the chaos in the wilderness. He speaks and a barrier crystallizes between the waters above and the waters below. The sky heaven snaps into place, as it were. Order, symmetry, harmony in the midst of this chaos. He speaks and the chaotic waters retreat they go back and the land emerges out of them. Again, he's creating order and harmony. He speaks and the barrier arises that holds the sea in place so that the land can flourish. He speaks and stars and planets, asteroids and comets come into being. They rush to their spots, their guard posts, where they will mark times and seasons and days. He speaks and he turns a wilderness into order. But it's not just order, because he then begins to bring life. He speaks, and grass, flowers, trees, tomatoes, fruit, it springs up. This thing that was formerly wasteland, chaos, emptiness, void, begins to flourish with life as he speaks. He speaks, and fish are formed, flashing through the seas. He speaks, and birds spring up rising on their wings into the heavens. He speaks and we see animals scurrying and braying and barking and lumbering across the ground. He speaks and this chaos has become order and this order has become full of life. And then God crowns this creation and he creates a garden. He crowns it with this beautiful paradise. And then he reaches down and he fashions man and woman and he calls them, and he says, watch over this world. Take care of it. In all of this story, we see a movement. We see a movement from chaos to order. We see a movement from death to life. And we see a movement from wilderness to garden. That's the one I want to talk about today, from wilderness to garden. But it's in that first garden that the tempter arrives. It's in that first garden that the tempter arrives, and man and woman fall to his temptation in the garden. They fall to his temptation in the garden, and they are driven out of the garden into the wilderness. They cannot go into paradise anymore. Of all of creation, only man and woman fail to obey the word of God. The trees obey his voice. The chipmunks obey his voice. The asteroids obey his voice. And man and woman fall. And because they fall, they are driven from the garden into the wilderness. It's in the wilderness that human history begins to take place. It's not the same degree of wilderness that it was before creation itself. God's grace still blankets the world. The order and the beauty and the life that he has created are still there, still permeates every land and people. His grace still blankets the world. But the garden has been lost. The paradise has been lost. And so what does mankind do? Well, we gathered at Babel. We gathered at Babel and we sought to rebuild Eden on our own terms. We sought to recreate the paradise to force God to let us out of the wilderness 
and back in to his home. In many ways, this is a fitting description of the history of humanity. Ever since then, we've been trying to create lost gardens, lost paradises. We make temples in God's gardens and paradises, trying to force God to let us back in by legalistically keeping the rules or making gods in our own image that have no rules. We've spent our history dealing with the fact that we were driven from the garden and human history has been lived in the wilderness. Our attempt has been to escape the wilderness, to enter Eden again. The closest we ever got to entering Eden again, the closest we ever got was in Solomon's temple. This is Eden recreated. God descends again, fills it with his glory, and walks with his creation, walks with his people. The artwork in Solomon's temple even indicates to us this is Eden recreated. There's vines and pomegranates on the walls. There's lampstands that look like trees full of light. You see the imagery of the garden. There's the gold of Eden is all over the walls, the woodwork, the tapestries. Even the angels that guard the entrances to the garden are there. The cherubim with their flaming swords. This is the closest we ever got to being back in Eden again. But this new Eden only occurred because God did something. And this is where I want you to hear the backstory with me. This new Eden, Solomon's temple, only occurred because God took his people out of a false Eden, the Egyptian empire, and he took them into the wilderness. He had to take them into the wilderness because that's the true state of all of humanity. He had to take them there to indicate to them this is what sin has done. And what did he do with them in the wilderness? He confronted their temptations head on. The same temptations that occurred at the very beginning to worship the false God, to grumble and complain against the true God, to say, can I not have more than what he's given me? The same temptations that they faced in the garden, he confronts again in the wilderness. And he shows them how to walk around the temptations. He shows them how to operate against the temptations. He shows them how to have forgiveness when they fall to the temptations. He takes the people into the wilderness because this is where humanity is. And he recreates them as a people. He does this so that he can bring them into the land and begin to build Eden again. This is what the tabernacle and the temple point to. But of course, we know that the Israelites were unfaithful. They were unfaithful and could not obey the word of God. Again, we alone of all of creation don't know how to obey God's word. And so God destroys the temple and drives them back into the wilderness again. This is the story of all of humanity. This is the fate of mankind because we've never been able to reject temptation. We always worship the wrong thing. We always covet what is not ours, and we always fail to obey the word of God. This is the fate of mankind. When Jesus stepped into the water of baptism, he was not merely identifying with sinners. When Jesus stepped into the water of baptism, he was stepping into the judgment of God that is rightly leveled against all of humanity 
the judgment of God that is leveled against all of humanity for our failure to simply obey the voice of the Lord. In his baptism, Jesus Christ showed that he is truly man under the judgment of God like us. And when he walked into the wilderness after the baptism, he did so as man. Listen to the story. He walked into the wilderness. Jesus hears the echoes and he enters the actual state of humanity. The actual state of humanity. Driven from the garden. Lost in the wilderness. Separated from God. Alone. Jesus' lonely walk into the wilderness is to come to where humanity was. Watch him walk. He walked alone, his back to Jerusalem, walking east of Eden into the wilderness where humanity was alone, entering into the judgment that was upon all of us. He walked alone. He had to go back to the beginning. He's stepping back into Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve walking out of Eden, out into the wilderness. He was alone. And he walked that path alone that day. He took no one with him because no one could bear that journey with him. He took no one with him because he alone is truly man. Everyone else, all of us, are fallen and corrupted. He went alone into the searing sun. He went alone into the harsh wind, to the hot sand, to the wild beasts. All pictures of what sin does to us. Pictures of our pride, our anger, our jealousy, our gluttony, our lust, our fear, our despair. And Jesus walked alone into that wilderness. He walked alone to be tempted. There was a confrontation he had to face. He had to face the original enemy. He's replaying all of human history in his own life. He had to face the original enemy, that enemy that we could not resist, even in the comforts of the garden where there was no hunger and where God was close at hand. We could not resist that enemy when we had everything for us. And he walks alone, a humble man, to the most desolate place to confront that ancient enemy, the serpent, the devil, Satan. He was not tempted just so that he could identify with us. Now, it is true that because he was tempted, he can identify with us. But he was not tempted just so that he could identify with us. He went into the wilderness on purpose, driven by the Spirit to face the devil, face to face. Alone in the harsh wilderness of humanity's fall, he went so that he could defeat the devil, so that he could break his power. He went for this confrontation. We failed when we came face to face with the devil in the garden. And so Jesus went to the wilderness to face that same enemy. And he went to break the power of the tempter. He went so that he could break the power of the tempter, so that he could begin to rebuild Eden. 
He went so that he could break the power of the tempter, so that he could begin to rebuild Eden for all who would follow him. He was going back to the beginning, to the very root issue, to the question, will humanity, will humanity obey the voice of God? He goes back to confront that singular question. And of course he does. He obeys the voice of the Lord. He confronts the devil face to face and he shatters his power because he says, I will obey the voice of the Lord and not my desires. He succeeds where we fail. And the devil in that moment was defeated. The devil in that moment was defeated because a new Adam had arisen. And this new Adam looked the devil in the face and obeyed God. I don't have time to tell the rest of the story. Y'all might be thankful. I don't have time, though, to tell the rest of the story, how he leaves this wilderness victorious, how he begins to build a garden by gathering broken men and broken women and healing them, how he begins to rebuild Eden, this thing that he calls the kingdom of God, how the devil in his fury, broken, lashes out and seeks to destroy the Son of God God in the flesh, how Jesus, while dead in the flesh and alive in the spirit, descends to hell and makes victory proclamation over the spirits who are in prison, rises from the dead, ascends to heaven to receive power and glory in a kingdom, and showers his spirit on this new garden, this new Eden, this new people he's created. I don't have time to go into the detail of all the rest of the story, but I just want to end by looking closely for a second at the defeat of the devil in the desert. Face to face with Satan, alone, sunburnt, weakened by hunger. Face to face with Satan, Jesus did something that you and I have never done for more than a moment. He did something that you and I have never done for more than a moment. He said no. He rejected temptation fully and completely. He rose above it and shoved it down and defeated the power of the tempter. He clung to the word of God and rebuked the devil alone, hungry in the desert. He did what Adam and Eve failed to do. He obeyed God. He obeyed the Father, not his own desires, not the desires of his belly, He obeyed the Father face to face with the devil. He did what Adam and Eve failed to do. But he also did what I have failed to do. He did what you have failed to do. At every moment when you have been faced with temptation and you have given in, taken the easy road, At every moment where you have failed or where I have failed, Jesus did what we could not do. He faced the devil and he said no. He rose above. He broke the power of the tempter in the desert. And because he has done this, because he has done this, we are invited out of the wilderness. Because he has done this, We are invited out of the wilderness of sin 
Because he has done this, we are invited into the Eden that he is recreating. Because he has done this, we are invited into the kingdom. Because he has done this, we are treated as if we too had been victorious in the desert. Can you imagine that? Treated as if you had been victorious over sin at every step of the way. What a marvel is that? Because he did this, we are treated as if we had been victorious. Because he has done this, we have been given the Spirit. We have been given the Spirit who is slowly teaching us to live as citizens of this new creation. Because he has done this, we can become like Jesus. This is our King. He was willing to go into the wilderness for us, and he did what we cannot do. This is our King. Amen.